It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Bit of housekeeping before we begin. Do you want to come and see us doing the podcast live? Well, on Wednesday of this week, so if you're listening to this in December, then in front of you too late, uh, but on Wednesday this week, Patrick Maguire and I are doing a very special edition of PMQ's Unpacked live at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. So if you're knocking around Cheltenham Wednesday lunchtime, uh, just go online, search PMQ's Unpacked Cheltenham, and you can find all the details, and we're doing the radio show and the podcast live in front of hundreds of people. What could possibly go wrong? I'm also in Cheltenham uh, for the whole week doing my radio show and uh, I'm doing a panel called Personality Politics, interviewing Jess Phillips. And on Saturday night, I'm doing uh, the first outing of a new stand-up show. So if you are in Cheltenham, just go online to the Cheltenham Literature Festival uh, and you can find all the details there. It'd be lovely to see. If you can't make it to Cheltenham, but you'd still like to come and talk to me on the radio, well, you are in luck. Uh, come on and play our quiz. Can you get to number 10? 10 questions loosely connect to 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the job you get. Taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. Just email me now with your name and your number, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on the radio to do the quiz very soon. Right, I think that's enough housekeeping uh, for now. Coming up on today's episode... An absolute cracker, the legend that is Peter Brooks, Times cartoonist. Next year, he'll have been doing it for the Times for 30 years. Uh, he joins me to discuss his new book, a collection of two years' worth of cartoons. We discuss how he does it, has he ever regretted a cartoon, uh, um, the whole process of uh, doing cartoons. It's cartoons uh, on a podcast. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, so that's coming up. But first, it's our columnist panel. No uh, racial fest today. So it's Libby Purvis from The Atlantic, Tom McTague. Let's begin with the thing that we've had lots of messages from people saying, why are you talking about this? Because that's always a good that's always a good place to start. This Treasury row with the Treasury accusing, the, I mean, I think it's extraordinary, the Treasury accusing the business secretary of making things up uh, about whether or not the Treasury was offering to help business uh, deal with high energy bills. And uh, Libby, the thing that strikes me, two things are interesting. One, one part of the government accusing a cabinet minister of making things up is quite interesting. Two... Uh, one part of the government boasting almost they're not offering they're not even thinking about offering any help to businesses uh, right now is also worth uh, commenting on what's your take on it Libby 
Well, as to the the Treasury spokesman rudeness, I think, uh, as usual, the Queen does it better. You know, so expressions like recollections may vary <laughs> would be just that bit politer rather than, you know, this minister is always making things up in interviews, though heaven knows many of them do seem to make things up in interviews. But no, it's, it's, I, I, find that, I find that actually distasteful. I mean, it's quite amusing for us when, when the Cabinet is, is tearing lumps off each other, but it's not helpful to the country. And I'm just interested in this business of digging your heels in as well and not immediately saying, yes, yes, we'll give you lots of money. I mean, it is, it is something sort of in a way quite useful. I mean, I think they should be moving towards support. And I think what the business secretary should have sort of said was not, oh, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, you know, like, like a teenager tidying their bedroom. You know, he should have sort of said, we are going to start talking about this soon. Um, but I think uh, I, I'm, I am just interested. I don't know what to think. But I'm interested about the digging in the heels and saying, no, we're not actually going to just open the purse here. I think that's that's interesting to watch. Uh, Tom, take part part of this feels like it's part of the the pattern which emerges with this government, which starts off with digging in of heels, uh, and that lasts for a certain length of time, and then they go, "Oh, fine, we'll do something." And they did it with lorry drivers, they did it with uh, factories producing CO two. Um, uh, we suspect that you know over the, between now and Christmas, we'll find more and more parts of industry which actually, actually do suddenly need help, giving help from the government. Um, and it, it, but it doesn't necessarily give the impression of a government which is in control of things when they say no, 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 like that guy from the Vicar, Vicar of Dibley. It's just like no, 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 yes. <laughs> well, it's sort of no, 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 until Boris comes along and says, right, we're going to do this uh, because I, I don't like the headlines. And then it becomes a yes or a kind of grudging yes and it, and it, it's kind of reflective of of this uh sort of johnson government or he he is perfectly happy with them all fighting because he doesn't mind the chaos because as long as he's the king uh and then it and then it's sort of structurally you think it's just the same old treasury dominant government and the treasury hasn't really changed its mind it doesn't want to intervene and give people money but the prime minister does and he is he is powerful so it's just a constant fudge between those two i think um, i suppose libby the really interesting thing is that when tom says you know the treasury you know is the dominant treasury and the baptists of the old ways is that rishi sunak only got the job as part of an attempt to neuter the treasury it was only what 18 months ago uh, the um, Dominic Cummings, remember him? He wanted to yes. uh, it, it, sort of impose uh, special number ten special advisors on the Treasury team. Sajid Javid said no. Uh, he quit along with all of his advisors, and then Rishi Sunak was supposed to be sort of in the pocket of number ten, uh, beholden uh, to Boris Johnson, and yet he's ended up. It's actually given him more strength, if anything. Well, this is because he showed himself so steady and inventive, and fantastic at communicating in the early days of the pandemic. Nobody knew that was going to happen. I don't know how good uh, Javid would have been, but uh, Sunak, I think he, he just, he he raised himself above every level of being in the Prime Minister's pocket very, very quickly with that incredible sense of steadiness that he conveyed. I mean, we shall know in the long run whether it's all been the right thing to do or not, but it certainly has felt that way. And I can remember that, that sense of relief in the early days of the pandemic, that, yeah, here is somebody putting their arms around the country and sort of saying, look, you know, we're not, you're not all going to go bust straight away. You know, this is, this is not the end of days. You know, we will help. We are a rich country. We will help. And I think, I think he scored immense, immense 
immensely on that. And I think, therefore, he, he's got quite a lot of, of, of stretch before people start getting thoroughly disillusioned with him. And if he says it's not the time to roll out enormous support to businesses, I think a lot of people will, you know, will agree, will sort of say, OK, well, he, he maybe knows best. Yeah, maybe maybe he's got enough credit in the bank um, to do that. The other thing that strikes me, Tom, about this is uh, maybe it's just the nature of news and politics right now is that um, we just seem to go from being, you know, become experts in customs arrangements, then it was the R rates, then it was, <laughs> you know, CO2 production. Last week we were all experts in how you go about carving up pig carcasses. This week it's the amount of gas that, you know, steelworks uh, require. Um, I don't know. I don't. Is it healthy for us to have this sort of constant? You know, there's been lots of people saying Boris Johnson's gone on holiday in the middle of a crisis, and people have been pointing out technically governments are always in crisis. That's what governments are there for. That you know, um, are we in a state of perpetual crisis? Is it doing us any good, Tom? Well, no, I don't, I don't think so. It does feel like we're in a state of perpetual crisis. I mean, it, it kind of feels like it's the chopping trolley analogy. It's the coming shopping trolley analogy, isn't it? It sort of feels like we just we just you know bumble along, bashing from one thing to the to the next, without sort of a clear idea of where we're going. What kind of economy is it we're trying to create, other than this sort of you know a general sense of leveling up? I don't think anyone is really clear because I don't think Boris is particularly clear. So who emerges out of all this? As Libby says, it's it's this person who is incredibly calm and uh, and eloquent, but he's also very young. So who who is behind him? He has this sort of institutional force of the Treasury, by far the most dominant uh, department in uh, in Whitehall, and he's got rid of Cummings, who hates it. And who has he brought in? A former Treasury. Uh, civil servant as Boris Johnson's chief of staff. So I get this sense of Boris doesn't care what's going on. He doesn't really sort of grip things, but the Treasury does, and they're, they're keeping the show on the road. Well, yes, uh, while also insisting they're not actually doing anything about uh, keeping the show on the road. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, Libby, let's talk I about... Just say, can I, can I yeah. just say this, this this business of everybody suddenly being expert on lots of things. When I was a Today presenter, we all had to pretend we understood about the M3 money index. Anyone remember that? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, it was epidemiology of its day. Sorry, you were going don't, to ask something. Don't, uh, Libby, don't give away the fact that we're all just pretending. Uh, to understand this, I really do know all about how to carve a pig. Um, uh, Libby, let's talk about your 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 column today. Um, uh, it's about Jimmy Savile, and um, I, I confess I didn't see the the ITV documentary last week, but the people who did see it um, said it was. I mean, it was just. I mean, obviously, utterly, utterly grim. Sort of re- revealing the um, uh, what were they called a portrait of a predator. Um, and then um, the BBC are making a documentary about him, and part of me wonders. The BBC what, are making a BBC, BBC are doing make a, a drama, about him, yeah, which is sort of more drama. Controversial, yeah. Do we re- do um, we need that? Do you think? I'm sort well, of. Well, yeah, I don't. What I don't know whether we need the play or not. I mean, there was a very, very good stage play done with Alistair McGowan playing him, which was absolutely terrifying and actually quite useful. Uh, but no, I mean, there was nothing new in the ITV documentary. We all know the story. But what nobody says enough is that the way he burrowed into the featherbed of the establishment. You know, the way he had sort of the, the Prince of Wales and Cardinal Hume proposed him for the Athenaeum and Mrs. Thatcher had him to checkers. And I think a great deal of this was something which we don't admit to enough, which is inverted snobbery, that he was for many of these people, including BBC mandarins, their token pleb. Oh, he's an ex-wrestler. You know, he was a miner, a Bevin boy. You know, he's ever so poor. Oh, he grew up poor. Oh, he's kind to his mum, heart of gold. He's our northerner. Tick, tick, tick the boxes. You know, and then you don't look at the actual person and the actual sort of seediness and 
problematic nature and a, a braggadocio of that person because you're being you're checking your privilege you're being kind and i think this is something which still goes on i think quite a lot of checking of privilege causes us to be blind to the ways that certain people are twisting truth you know are twisting um, you know theories about gender and so on it's the it's the check your privilege inverted snobbery and i think occasionally you need to call that out and say look sometimes you have to trust your own instincts and your own moralities and the things you have known all your life to be true and decent and not say oh well actually it's the culture you know, so they, there you go. Um, uh, that's what I'm saying. And some people are agreeing with me below the line and others, as per usual, are absolutely not. <laughs> what, what do you make of this, Tom? I'm, I'm, I wonder whether actually, um, I wonder whether it's more just about incredibly powerful, successful people that organisations rely on are very reluctant to, to call them out on it, whether that has been, you know, whether it was Bill Crosby or R. Kelly, you know, when there's a lot of money involved, successful people, they do seem to get a free pass. Yeah, they do. But I, I do think it is... Um emblematic of a sort of wider problem i thought the, the column was brilliant and it, it, it makes me feel it made me think about lots of um lots of different instances in in our life where it's just too much hassle to be the one person who who gets a name for themselves writing about a certain thing whether it's gender or, or or brexit or anything else where you think there's an obvious truth here but I don't want to be the one to have to carry the can and get, you know, get all of the grief for coming out and saying it. Uh, so that, that the sort of the, the power of uh, sort of social pressure is also something that I think uh, is incredibly dominant. And and, and that sense of uh, that Libby talked about of feeling uh, you sort of going with your instinct rather than feeling the pressure, you know, it reminds me of. Uh, this book I read recently where it said, you know, the what we think of as irrational instincts are, are mostly just rational things, but we haven't yet quite understood the argument for it. We don't have the reasons, but we know it's we, we know it's rational somewhere, but it's dismissed as being irrational. Yeah, well, is that, well I'm, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this um, this BBC drama because I'm, yeah, I'm I'm just not. I mean, it, whether or not we need to sort of essentially make entertainment out of something so dreadful, yeah. uh, and the BBC sort of doing it now as a way to sort of show, oh, yeah, no, we we, we know it was awful. Um, uh, it might be better if they'd have been slightly more aware of that before. Um, just finally, Tom, um, let's talk about this piece that you've written about Newcastle and Saudi Arabia. And... Oh, so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Now, explain, if people are not close followers of the association football, explain what's gone on here, Tom, and then your your take on it. Well, it's, just, it's, it's, it's an unrelentingly grim story, really. I mean, Newcastle is a, is a traditionally big football club with big supporters, and it has this giant stadium that sits in the centre of town, but rather like a cathedral. You know, that was my, um, that was my sort of intro. It feels like a cathedral when you're there. It's the sort of centre of the city. And for so long, it's been owned by, you know, this awful man, Mike Ashley, who runs Sports Direct and it's been plastered with Sports Direct franchi franchises on the outside. And the whole place has just felt cheapened and and kind of horrible and they haven't achieved anything because he's, you know, essentially a very rich cheapskate. And Saudi Arabia have taken over and the fans came out and they were celebrating en masse outside St. James's Park, some wearing, you know, their... Uh, their uh, tea towels on their head, you know, which was rather, you know, uh, un-PC. But then you, it just feels awful. And it feels kind of like, it feels like almost of an old age, an age where 
we did accept everyone's money. Anything could mm. come into London as long as we made some money. It didn't matter. We had oligarchs. We had uh, Arab billionaires coming here. I thought that kind of had gone. That felt old. And yet, and yet the Premier League mm. lives on and people are celebrating it um, because it gets some money in. And I think it's, it, it just shows a kind of lack of coherence in what, as a country, we, we want to be. I, I loved I loved what uh, what Tom wrote. I mean, I could I could have flung my arms around him. Uh, <laughs> the same thing happens in the property market. We have been pimping out the capital city and parts of other great cities to dirty foreign money for a very long time. You know, the the the, incre the, the incredible sort of buying up of not just millionaire palaces but huge blocks of new build flats and so on. It, you know, just going to to money, which often is very dirty money, and nobody seems to understand how disgraceful this is. You know how how Britain has just been totally put up for sale for so long. And, I mean, Tom absolutely nails it. There's also something about football in particular, Tom, that, and we saw it with the, the European Super League, where people still... It's, it, people ignore the fact it's just a massive, quite grubby business with loads of money sloshing around, actually quite often money from, whether it's betting firms or dodgy regimes, whatever it might be, but because, you know, you can you can film someone kicking a football down the back of some terraced houses uh, and, you know, put some oasis on it and you can create the illusion it's still this sort of earthy, community-based um, uh, <laughs> thing and it's all, you know, people in flat caps and dads taking their sons and welling up and all that sort of... It, but but it, it's none of those things, is it? It's just a massive corporate... You know, having Saudi Arabia coming in is no better or worse than the awful man from Sports Direct... Um, and so, you know, Newcastle delighted they're going to buy uh, more players and maybe they'll do better. But everyone sort of, you know, but then it loses something else as a result. Yeah, but it, it feels like a sort of, you know, sport by performance art or politics by performance art. It's all just nonsense. And it comes back to the... Libby's piece, you know, we we don't call this out. It's right in front of us. We know this nonsense is right there, um, but we, we sort of just go along with it because the whole thing is corrupt. So that, you know, as soon as you get that, that foothold, you know, uh, the, the Russian oligarch buying Chelsea, that was one thing. Nobody said anything at the time. And then uh, the UAE buy Man City and nobody says anything at the time again. And then suddenly the corruption is just everywhere. And you think, well, if everyone's corrupt, I may as well be corrupt. Because, what you know, what, what's, what, what is there to lose? I'm the mug here if I'm not corrupt. And that's the same in the in the housing market. That's the same in uh, in London. Um and you just think, well, this is some, somebody should just say it and call it out for what it is. And it does feel like, um, again, it's the sort of the token northerners, oh, Newcastle, you know, token northerners, working class guys out there supporting them. Well, you, you can still say something's wrong. <laughs> I love the way you managed yeah. to pull everything together into one uh, beautiful. <laughs> everything is awful. There we are. Lovely yep. stuff. <laughs> but you do I, get you do get person. into trouble for it. Tom McTagan, Libby Post there. Of course, you can read Libby in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. And as a bonus right now, you get your first three months for just £3. Go online to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Peter Brooks. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for my chat with the legendary Times cartoonist, Peter Brooks. Uh, now, I was looking up when I, when I knew you were coming in. Next year, you mark 30 years at the Times. Do you know you're probably right? I haven't been counting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's ni 1992, I think it says. It's 1992, so, you're right. The yeah. way you started. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how... You're, you're, uh, 
when you started back then, how much has your style or your approach changed? Well, the style's changed a fair bit because in those days we were black and white. Okay. And I used to work in a rather sort of heavy-laboured, cross-hatched way, which is pen and ink, black and white. Um, and then we went into colour, and so the whole thing changed, and I had to learn a whole lot of new tricks. Um, and I wasn't very good to start with, I have to say. I, mean, I don't know how good I am now, but I, I've had enough practice, put it that way. Well, I'll tell you what, before, before you, you start being your faux modesty, already <laughs> we've had messages coming in saying, uh, Peter Brooks is unmatched in his artwork, wit and satire, the highlight of the times, hope he keeps gracing the paper. So plenty of people are, are, are massive fans. Um, talk me through the process then. We're, we're now, well, it's just gone 11 o'clock in the morning. Talk me through your day. How do you yeah. go from something happening in the news to you producing basically this incredible piece of artwork that's in tomorrow's paper? Right. Um, well, I start at 6.30, listen, wow. listening to the Today programme. I mean, I'm not out of bed. All the t- all Times Radio <laughs> breakfast, obviously. All, all Times Radio, yeah, 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 yeah. It has been <laughs> in the past. It has, <laughs> has, has been a Radio 4. Um, but anyway, I'm uh, listening to the radio and listening to the news as I'm getting up and all the rest of it and getting ready. And since March last year, I've been working from home. So it's an easier process to get from downstairs up to the top of the house than it is to get into work here um, at the news building. Um, although it doesn't take me long. It's only, I'm only 11 minutes away. So that was always quite a good journey. So I was in here for the morning conferences, and there are two morning conferences. There's a quarter of an hour one, which is to do with um, um, section heads uh, throwing ideas around. And I will listen in to that now on the phone. And it's very helpful, but it's only a quarter of an hour. And then the main conference is about an hour in length. And uh, that's very useful indeed. But that's half ten to half eleven. And anything can happen during the rest, rest of the day. And you have to be ready um, to adapt what you've been doing or change it altogether and start again uh, later in the day, if, that, if that's the case. So it's a, it's a matter of juggling things. And by three o'clock... If I haven't got an idea of where I want to go, because that's the point of it, really, is the idea is the main thing. And the drawing, you have to allow yourself enough time to do it properly, because I take up half a page in the Times, myself and my colleague, Morton Morland. And so the drawing has to be of some substance, really, <laughs> otherwise people will be very fed up with a sketchy little thing that doesn't amount to anything. And I suppose part of the reason of you sort of listening into the, the, the news conference, knowing what's on the news list and what's, about, what's happening, is, is, is it sometimes, I suppose, by doing that, that's how you get those the brilliant cartoons which combine two news stories of the day. You know, there's a story about, I thought it might be, about, about James Bond on one that's page right. of the paper... Yeah. Uh, and then there's a story about Gavin Williamson on another part of the page, and you, then you can bring the two together. Yeah, for some reason, and I don't know why, but it seems to work when you do that. People laugh or people get a connection. That, I mean, the difficult thing I've got um, is in analysing humour. It's what Barry Cryer <laughs> said. You know, it's a bit like dissecting a frog. Nobody laughs and the frog dies. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so you can't really... Uh, how you put these things together... Just it's serendipity often, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and people connect with and it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. So so you get to about three o'clock, hoping you've got an idea in your yeah. head. Yeah. How talk us through the process then? Do you draw it with pencil first? When talk us through the entire sort of creative process? How long it takes? Well, I say three o'clock, but I generally aim for earlier than that. And I have a book, 
which is a sketchbook in which I do a pencil drawing of uh, the way I see it. And it's important to me to sort of map out just how the structure of the cartoon is going to be. Having got an, a germ of an idea, I'll put it down in this sketchbook and then I'll photograph it and send it to the um, editor of, of, of the comment pages, who is now Roland Watson. I send it to him and he gets back to me and we have a little discussion about it or he gives me a thumbs up or he rings up and query, <laughs> queries what on earth I'm going on about. <laughs> um, so, so that's decided. I didn't realise that you had that sort of... Because I have to, when I'm doing my column for Roland, I have to do the same thing. I'll send him a sort of, literally a sort of sketched out in words what I might do my column on and he'll say yes or no. But I didn't realise you literally send him a sketch. And I send him a sketch because it's easy to photograph it on your, on your phone and, uh, you know, and, and send it. Um, and, you know, describing it doesn't really yeah, help. Yeah. It's a bit like if I have to describe one of my cartoons <laughs> to you now, no one can see what on earth I'm talking about. So it's much better to actually see it. And so he does that. And then... Um, in my mind, I have an all clear, if you like, you know, it's settled as to what I'm doing. And I can, it's not a, a vetting procedure at all. It, it's not like that. And um, in fact, I've been incredibly lucky over the years at the times that nobody says to me, you can do this, you can't do that. It, it, it never happens and never has done. Um, and anyway, with Roland during the day, I've got what I want to do in pencil. I then put it on uh, my copying machine blow it up to the size i want to do which is the same constant every day exactly the same size and um makes life easy and then i draw it out in pen and ink and watercolor which is what i use and how long does that, that process take because anyone who's ever tried watercolors will know that you know you need to let it dry and you know you don't want to get in like a big old mushy mess how long does that process oh, that's take? true but despite the fact well listeners can't see me but I'm as bald as a coot <laughs> and uh, I have a hairdryer and, <laughs> uh, but not for my hair I have a hairdryer to dry that, quickly that speeds up the process it speeds up the process and it dries the pen and ink and it dries the um, watercolor um, very quickly and because speed is of the essence really um, and I suppose it's difficult to judge and I'd hate every day to be exactly the same luckily it's not um, because some drawings are going to take you longer than others and some I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in that I'm old enough now, pushing 80, that I've done this long enough to know how to gauge how long someone's going to take me. And magically, it always finishes at about 7.30, uh, <laughs> which is when I, I really have to file, or even a bit earlier sometimes. And what happens if at about 6 o'clock, you're halfway through, you know, you're, you're well on your way to, to being finished, blow-drying mm. away along, mm. and the person you're doing a cartoon of resigns, yeah. or the story that you're essentially commenting on dramatically yeah. changes? What yeah. happens then? What happens is I... Um, I go into a flat spin, to put it politely. <laughs> I won't suggest any other bodily function that sort of makes you <laughs> makes you disturbed and worried about these things. But, um, yeah, it can be pretty hairy. Um, but then if I've got time, I mean, the, the default position is just to carry on and expect people to realise, well, it was obviously too late for him to do anything <laughs> about it, uh, so I can't expect him to have uh, uh, done that story. But people don't, for some reason. People think you're sitting there... Uh, this isn't to demean what uh, readers think at all, but I know that some people think you're actually, you know, inking in every newspaper at about eight o'clock <laughs> in the morning before they get it through the door. And it is, it's immediate. It's not quite that immediate because uh, 
I've got to finish by 7.30. I can go later. That's My answer to you is that I can go later if it's absolutely necessary. And if a huge story's broken, then the rest of the paper's going relatively late as well to catch up with it. So I'm allowed that. So. <laughs> You're allowed that for you, yeah, as long as yeah, you do it too yeah, often. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and how do you choose your targets? Because... Um, yeah. uh, you, you essentially, I don't know, I've spoken to you about this before, you do treat it like, as, a, as a columnist, that you have a point of view. Yes. And you, you sort of pursue that point of view a, a, right. above all else. That's, well, how I choose my targets is basically Johnson, Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> and what I find, actually, I'm very cherry about this, although some readers think I'm not, that I do him too often. But frankly, he's the only show in town, as far as the cabinet are concerned. The very few instances where you can draw a cabinet another um, a, a cabinet member who's done anything meaningful or <laughs> newsworthy it doesn't often happen pretty patel occasionally i'll have a good swipe at her because you know i profoundly disagree with the way that she treats uh, asylum seekers uh, the way they've been housed all that sort of thing is uh, unkind in many instances and i find with johnson particularly Latterly, uh, for some reason, although I think he's always been like this, he doesn't care. And um, I just find that, um, you know, awful. And uh, his lack of uh, empathy and sympathy, um, you know, uh, I just find unbelievable. And so I've been doing a lot of cartoons on that basis recently. And how it's sort of amazing because it, it's it's so instantly recognisable as Boris Johnson, yet also doesn't look anything like. It's, it's sort of because it's basically the hair, isn't it? Yeah, it is the hair. I mean, I, you don't see his eyes in my cartoons. The hair, and I've been doing this since early Spectator covers when uh, he was featuring as you know going for mayor of London. This was donkey's years ago, obviously, and I used to draw him exactly like that, and uh, no vision, all that sort of thing, blind as a bat, you know, to anyone else. Um, so, yes, um, he looks more like Stanley, actually, quite often <laughs> than he does uh, himself. What about, what about when you choose to do something more serious? If I've just yeah. opened your book, um, yeah. uh, and there's, there's a cartoon of him. This is, this is when uh, the UK cut past a sort of That's one of the right. terrible coronavirus milestones, and it's just Boris Johnson standing at a lectern at one of his coronavirus press conferences, but the lectern is a tombstone with 100,000. That's right. And not, so normally people are flicking through the paper saying, I'll tell you who's going to make me laugh about All the news is miserable. I'll tell you who's going to make me laugh about this. But instead you're making a serious part. How often do you, yeah. do, you do that? Quite often because, um, you know, the news isn't always a laugh a minute, um, as we all know. Um, and you can uh, use humour a lot. Um, but at other times you've got to be serious. And a political cartoon can embrace all these things, really. It can be shades of... It can be black humour, it can actually intend to make you laugh and pull these people down a bit. Um, I mean, basically, my um, feeling about what a political cartoon is, it's a bit... Um, the best analogy I've ever heard, really, is you are basically the slave in ancient Rome, <laughs> standing on the back of the chariot as the general is riding through Rome to cheers and acclaim and all the rest of it, victorious, and you are whispering in his ear, you are mortal, you are mortal. <laughs> and, and that's really what you're trying to do all the time, is actually bring these people down um, uh, a peg or two, really. You're not probably going to change policy or anything like that. Um, that's not really what you... You know, you'd be mad if you thought you could. Um, but 
you know, you really want to give them a good kicking now and again. And that's <laughs> a huge privilege to be able to take half a page on the paper to actually follow your prejudices, basically. Well, I'm going to ask you in a sec whether, uh, how you feel then about uh, um, politicians who, who buy your cartoons and hang it up in their downstairs mm-hmm. loo. Uh, this is Matt Chilton. I'm speaking to Peter Books, Times, col- uh, Times cartoonist, about his new book, Desperate Times. Uh, more from Peter in just a moment. It's Matt Chilton on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard. Empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Uh, joined in the studio by Peter Books, the award-winning Times uh, cartoonist. We've been doing it for 30 years next year. He's got a new book out called Desperate Times, which is a collection, a sort of terrifying collection of the past sort of two years, isn't it, yes, Peter? Yes, two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, uh, back, back in the days when the, all we had to worry about was Jeremy Corbyn, all the way through <laughs> uh, the arrival of COVID, the departure of Donald Trump, uh, and right up to date now. We were just talking about um, uh, how you, you, you're sort of trying to remind politicians they're more, give them a good kicking. And yet some politicians love being in Carter. How mm. do you cope with, with the fact that you feel like you've given a politician a really good kicking and then they try to buy the the cartoon to put up in the downstairs loo? Well, there's two sides to this. Uh, one is that, um, um, luckily, I can deal through a gallery. Uh, <laughs> so you don't have to deal so with them So I don't deal with them direct, <laughs> and I don't know who they are who buy them. Actually, I don't know who anybody is who buy them, apart from a few collectors who uh, buy quite a few, and I've got to know one or two of them, but not politicians. Um, so uh, that's the way it works for me. And by the way, I've got an exhibition on as of next week Very good. from the book. So people can uh, go and see them so up people close. people can see them up close, uh, which some people enjoy doing. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to <laughs> let them see them. Um, and the other thing about politicians is that, um, you know, you, you hear them getting angry um, uh, at cartoons, but they're more often more angry if they don't appear in cartoons. <laughs> that's the cliche of it. And it's probably true. Are you aware that your cartoon has ever changed either anyone's opinion or uh, or shifted policy or, or anything like that? Well, Cameron once told me that a cartoon I'd done, which was a sort of flip-flop, I had him uh, depicted as a, um, uh, a pair of flip-flops, you know, his face. Yeah. It makes a beautiful... <laughs> the shape of his <laughs> face it makes a beautiful rubber sole, basically. Uh, and he told me that one cartoon I did on that made him... Uh, you know, it, it took him up short or whatever the, whatever the expression, pulled him up short um, and uh, made him rethink something. I don't know what it was, just uh, that's probably um, to, to put the kindest um, complexion on it, just what a cartoonist would get from a politician who's speaking to <laughs> And what about, um, because it, it, as well as drawing, you know, Boris Johnson with the hair of his eyes, over the years you've had uh, Ed Miliband as uh, Gromit. Do you know, someone introduced me to Ed Miliband a couple of nights ago at the Cheltenham Literature Festival, which I did not want. <laughs> and I did not want because I was scared or not wanting to defend what, or, or having to defend what I did. I didn't have to defend what I did. But it was the fact that politicians speaking to you about the cartoons you've done uh, dissemble and they sort of, uh, you know, muck around and saying, oh, yes, of course, yes. No, I thought they were terribly funny. Oh, no, I loved all those. Whereas you... So <laughs> what did he say? Did. What did Edward about so he say? He said all that. You know, he, <laughs> said, he said, you know, oh, no, I think they have a good place in, you know, oh, you know and it got very awkward in a sense, really, because I just said, well, I was doing my job, you know, that's what I do. And um, 
He didn't criticise them. He didn't say, but that's the worst thing, you know, because I happen to know that he didn't. He didn't like them. Well, but and because you did it so much, I suppose there's a, there's a, it probably did embed in some people's minds. Sometimes you you shifted people's perception of him. Uh, it may well have done, yeah. um, and also with Cameron, I had him as a public school toff, and uh, you know, um, the leader of the Lib Dems, um, dear Nick. I agree with Nick. Was it was his was his fag, and uh, you know I kept them going for about four or five years like that during the coalition. And then what about what about someone like Keir Starmer, who's not mm. uh, the most colourful of characters? No, he's not. So what what do you do about that? I mean, Theresa May was probably a bit the same as yeah, well. Very much. Yeah. So do you have to almost make them more interesting in order to make them cartoonable? Well, I don't think you can actually. <laughs> that would be a you know an impossibility. But uh, what you do do is um, I suppose play on that in, to some degree. I can remember doing one or two cartoons where you're. Uh, making them say, I did an April Fool's cartoon where I had a whole array of, which is in the book, which a whole array of um, uh, politicians all saying, because it's April Fool's Day, all saying the opposite of what they actually <laughs> believed. And uh, and I remember Keir Starmer was saying, uh, I've got something very interesting to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, you play on you play on that fact that he was much more interesting to draw earlier on, strangely, because his hair. Stood up like a sort of punk, <laughs> punk uh, hairstyle, but now he's all smoothed out. And uh, but you know, what, whatever you think of these people as a cartoonist, you know, you've also got to think of them as someone you either whose politics um, you agree with or you don't agree with, and that's really, you know, the name of the game, really. Um, and, and given you produce so many, you do was it three, three a I week? Do, I do four a week. Four a week now. Moment, yeah. Um, d- do you, are there any that you regret that you now look back on or have any that have got you into trouble? Oh, several have got me into trouble. Oh, yeah. But I don't regret them. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> which ones in particular have got you into trouble? Well, there was Pope Benedict. I did a cartoon of Pope Benedict, which got me the, the most... Um, you, got, you got properly ticked off for that, didn't I, you? Not only properly ticked off, the editor did too. And the editor was summoned to, you know, the Cathedral of Westminster and uh, given a, a real ticking Expl- off. Explain was, like, what your cartoon was. It was because Pope Benedict had issued whatever popes issue, uh, an edict or or an encyclical or whatever, before he was making a tour of Africa. This was was a long, long time ago. This was in 2011, I think, something like that. And he he put out this this edict that um, condoms didn't help in the fight against AIDS, you know, which I thought was just a... Especially in Africa, in a huge, massive population of Africa, I just thought oh, I've had enough of this, and I did a cartoon of him um, with a instead of the papal whatever it's called um, mitre, uh, mitre. So, yeah. well, yes, yeah, whatever the Catholic equivalent of that is, he had a condom on his head, <laughs> and uh, uh, and that. Um, went straight to the top table at the Vatican. <laughs> it did. It went to, straight to the top table at the Vatican, along with a colleague of mine in France who works for Le Monde, Plantu, uh, who did a cartoon, not the same um, idea, but on the same subject. And he and I were both talked about <laughs> in extremely strong terms by the top, the top team, which presumably means the Pope. Now, um, knowing you as I do, I suspect you absolutely loved that. I did, but, you know, the strange, <laughs> the strange thing is I didn't set off 
No. To create a, a storm and that, get letters in the Times from the Cardinal of Westminster and all the rest of it. I didn't set off to do that. And, and did you think when you were doing it, this might cause... Because there must, must be someone you think this might cause trouble and then it sort of passes by without an incident. Well, no, I didn't, strangely. I, I just thought it's another... Uh, because I've done quite a few, um, you know, cartoons that I think, you know... I don't know how to explain it, really. No, you, I didn't. And I... I I think if I start thinking, um, oh, this is going to cause a ruckus or yeah. I'm going to get them going with this one, it's the, wrong, it's the wrong way around. What happens is it's got to be the, the idea or what's happened has got to be the thing that motivates you and yeah, motivates yeah. the cartoon and gets you angry or gets you... Otherwise, you could go through life, you know, just being kind of slightly false and saying, you know, I'll, I'll just do this because I know it'll anger people, as opposed to, I'll do this because I believe this is wrong. That's what you actually think. And yeah. what about, somebody got in touch about, the, the, the recent one you did of um, Pretty Patel, yeah. with mar an argument for mandatory masks, oh, yes, which yes, is yeah. a lot of people putting lots of masks across. Yeah. That seemed to provoke a bit of a Twitter storm. It, it that, did, that, that got a lot. And yeah. people accused you of being sexist and yeah. misogynistic. And do, you, do you worry about that? No, because all you've got to do now is draw a person of colour and you're accused of being racist. You know, and that's part of this whole thing at the moment, and it's part of what was happening on 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 this particular instance that um, these guys were getting um, attacked um, for taking the knee and all the rest of it, and she was saying they shouldn't be taking the knee and, and this all this, and um, um, I can't remember exactly um, the um, the. the Limits of the story. Can you can you remember exactly? Yeah, she what? she said they shouldn't be taking the yeah. knee, and then two weeks later had her England shirt on and was um, yes, that's right, exactly, was, uh, exactly. Was, you know, claiming that was some, it. Someone claiming credit for how well yeah, England that, was doing. That was it. But no, I don't. Um... I have to say, I get exactly the same thing. If I were to do a column about Pretty Patel, I get accused of being racist, yes. even though I've previously yeah. done Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, yeah. Yeah. Gavin Williamson, yeah. or whatever it might yeah. be. And it's not just a question of you're exaggerating their features or anything like that, which I'm doing no more than I do with any other politician. Um, it's just that they don't... They, they think... And because she's a woman, of course, that takes the stakes you're, you're, up even you're, higher. You're sexist you know, as well. Misogynist yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it, yeah. Does social media, uh, or just the internet in general, is that, does that change? Because, like you were saying, you've gone from a black-and-white hatch drawing in, a, in the printed copy of The Times. Yes. Now you're... You can be seen anywhere, anywhere around the world. Does that change the topics that you choose? Uh, do you take any notice of the sort of digital reaction you get, whether it's comments underneath or people on Twitter? Well, I put my stuff up every day on Twitter after the paper's been out a little while, so that um, <laughs> I'm allowed to do that a bit later on. Uh, and, um, you know, no, it hasn't changed anything, yeah. really. And it, it, Twitter's such a dangerous thing. You can be swayed, <laughs> you can be, you know, you can be lured into thinking, oh, look, I've got so many likes for this and I must do another one like it and or, or yeah, similar. Yeah. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't get involved in that. Really. Don't, don't get, yeah, don't take any notice of Twitter. And just, you, you talked about how you had to change your style. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you've been doing, you know, the, you've been doing them like this for quite a long, a long time yes. now. Yeah. Is there any other styles of cartoonists or uh, other cartoonists who you particularly admire or young? Because there yeah. aren't many outlets these days, presumably, to be a young cartoonist. No, uh, well, the difficulty they have, and I do feel sorry for young cartoonists because the only way you can actually develop and uh, get anywhere as a cartoonist is actually by doing it. And of course, there they are sitting at home quite often. There aren't that many, actually, to be honest, who are trying to 
to do this. Um, there were more, it seems to me, about 10, 20 years ago than there are now. And maybe they see commentary being better served by, you know, being on the internet and, yeah. being, and, and doing that sort of thing rather than being a newspaper cartoonist, because as we all know, newspapers <laughs> have got a finite life. Um, but of course, we and others um, are now on the net. And, uh, you know, we, I mean, I much prefer the way my cartoons look, uh, you know, on screen because they're backlit and the colours much work. brighter and the colours yes, really pop rather than on dirty old print. Dirty, dirty yeah. old newsprint. <laughs> but that said, you know, I'm still very fond of newspapers and uh, I can't remember what we were talking about. Anyway, <laughs> have you got any advice for anyone who wants to Oh, yes, 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 yeah, indeed, yeah. yes. Um, well, I mean, I've always been more than happy to see people who want to talk about it and, uh, and to, to find... Uh, ways of becoming a newspaper cartoonist. I mean, it's quite simple. Just wait for us to die. <laughs> <laughs> I know you just keep on going, Peter. 30 years is still going strong. Well, I, as I said before, <laughs> I'm pushing 80. I don't see myself doing it for that much longer. But I do feel sorry for them because it is difficult, a difficult process to get into. And there are only so many out, uh, openings. Uh, and they're all, all full, you know. We're all yeah, working. Yeah. And um, so I just advise them to, to, to plug on with it and to, to keep trying if they can, but they've got to make a living as well. Yeah, you yeah, do it on the side. I'm just finding your, your book, uh, Desperate Times, is out now. What's your favourite cartoon in there? Do you have a favourite, or they all like your children? They're all your favourite. Do you know, I can't. I, <laughs> no, I wouldn't say they're all my favourites. I think what I particularly like about the book, or the way the book's turned out, is that on the cover, I've got uh, Boris Johnson as uh, Vicky Pollard, um, who's at a Boris uh, at a uh, Downing Street briefing. And instead of the um, podium saying, save lives, uh, stay at home, stay, stay at, at home, home yeah, yeah. That, it says, yeah, but no, but yeah, but, which is actually more and more what he's done. <laughs> <laughs> and on the, and the last, the, the last uh, cartoon in the book is a similar configuration of Matt Hancock um, <laughs> at, at, at the podium. At, at the podium. And uh, instead of saying... Uh, oh, what does it say Instead there? of saying hands, face, space, it says hands, hands face, face, bottom. Yes, and I, I, wish, I wish I'd had the, the guts to say arse, but uh, the bottom, <laughs> bo bottom was good enough. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>